about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining us on this episode is a man that's been umpiring since 1984, has been to many national and international competitions, has worked professional baseball, and is still trying to get into the world wrestling entertainment industry, Steve Butang. Topics we cover are how he got into umpiring, his work and experiences within professional baseball, working a gold medal plate in a seniors championship in his home province, and how he's able to get free steak. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Fun baseball facts. Did you know that on average in a given season, Major League Baseball will go through over 900,000 baseballs and that it takes about a week to make one baseball? Kind of makes sense these days why there's so many home runs. The ball's always in perfect shape. Not like when Babe Ruth or Roger Maris played where they'd use the same ball for most of the game until it went out of the park. Or even in your local games where the ball turns flat and you don't even see it and aerodynamics works against you. If you want to see how baseballs are made, check out the link in our show description and you'll find more information there. But anyways, welcome back to another episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Now, before we get to this episode, we're going to do a quick recap of what happened on the last episode of The Leading Edge, where we brought on a man that's been to multiple international championships, is currently slated to go to the Olympic Games, right out of Baseball Ontario, Trevor Grieve. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, here's what you're missing. Oh, I think back that back in the day, I always the one who always gives me the hardest time is still Ed Quinlan. Yeah, first of all, I'm going to give a shout out to my parents because you talk about commitment to those 4:30 morning wake-ups. You know, until yes. until I was 16 and got my my G2 driver's license here in Ontario, and there was a car waiting around the corner, so my parents didn't have to do that much longer. Let's move on. Why did you get into umpiring? Money. Do you still do it for the money today? No. You know, at some point in, in my umpiring career, sort of would just sort of be that provincial elimination championship. I, I really do have a lot of fond memories of back in the day, the, those provincial championships. You know, Don Gilbert used to be the supervisor of umpires here in Ontario. Doesn't matter where you are, if you're an umpire, you're part of that family. And Absolutely. It, it is a family. And, you know, you say that no matter where you go in this country, or within a province, umpires are knocking at the door to your dressing rooms. They just want to come say hello. But you know, minor league baseball, those cities, that that team is their life in a lot of those places, right? And it's what do you do on a Friday night, Saturday night, fireworks, entertainment? You know, you can take a family to an event like that for forty dollars with your hot dog and pop special, and you know, have a great night. I'm going to take you back to your first championship. We might have heard about it on our last episode. Guy by the name of Stu Sherwater told us he might have had the gold medal plate in that championship. If we ever need to see the VCR, I even have the VCR of that game too. So Cooper and Lance Barksdale was working right field. And we actually thought I was going to set a record. I was on pace for nine instant replays in one game. And, and don't burn bridges. Don't burn bridges. And I say that in a sense that, you know, you might be working with somebody a year from now that you don't know today or tomorrow. Well, Trevor, after our lengthy last episode, I couldn't agree with you more. Don't burn bridges. 
For taking that into consideration, Trevor, I'd like to thank you for the time. Thank you for coming on The Leading Edge and sharing with us some of your wisdom. We want to wish you all the best at the 2020 or whatever they're calling it, the 2021 Olympic Games. Now, for our listeners, if you want to check out that episode, you know where to find it. Spotify, TuneIn, Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. I don't know. Wherever you find podcasts, go find it. Or I'm going to assume, because you're listening to this one, we're going to assume you know where to go and how to get there. But anyways, one more quick blurb. Check out our Facebook. Look up Leading Edge Umpire Stories. The reason why we want you to check out the Facebook is simple. You'll know when the episodes are up. You can drop some comments, send us some feedback, some suggestions, all that fun stuff so that you can be part of the Leading Edge Umpire Stories fan club. But enough with the promotions now. It's time to get to this episode's guest, or should I say this half of the episode guest, Steve Butang. The reason why I say half is because we have split this interview into two pieces. Reason being is that it got a little lengthy over two and a half hours, and I got some feedback that people want to split it up into about an hour, hour, 20-minute show. So I'm going to try it, and we're going to go with it, okay? So without further ado, I'm proud to bring on British Columbia Baseball Umpire Association Provincial Supervisor, man that's been around the world and to multiple international and national championships, and a guy whose dream job is to caddy for Phil Mickelson, Steve Butang. Steve, welcome to the leading edge. Thanks for having me, Phil. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. This is season two, and you are following up with our previous guest, Trevor Greaves. So, you know what? Big shoes to fill, but I'm sure you can fill them. I'm a big guy. We'll get to that in a few minutes. I have a beef with you right off the bat. Okay. So, you introduced Ron Shuchuk my good friend from Manitoba, as a scratch golfer. The only thing that he is remotely close to scratching is a six or a seven on his scorecard for every hole that he plays, just so we're clear on that. I have golfed with Ron in the past, and he has snapped me for making him pick up his putts. I I try to give him the gimme because I don't think he can hit him. He can't bend down to pick the ball up. That's the problem. He does have that little thing on the end of his putter that he can just pop the ball out, right? Little suction cup. Kind of of embarrassing. What also is embarrassing is that he made his cart that day too. We were in swift current. Said there's a lot of hills. Can you imagine now? Hills on the prairies. It's a place I haven't played yet. Ronnie and I, when I used to go out and do the Western League, would play quite a bit in uh, Alberta when he was staying out in Medicine Hat. They have a uh, a beautiful golf course. Actually, a couple of them in in Medicine Hat. I believe the one that we played the one day was called Desert Bloom out by the airport. They're just a fantastic golf course. Anyway, I think uh, I know Ronnie and Haji struggled with the uh, with the greens. They were about as fast as bikini wax, and and I had a better round than they than they did. But it was a beautiful layout. I can see where he struggled over there with the greens over here in Saskatchewan. We like to keep the greens a little fuzzy, so there's no bikini wax used. But moving on from golf, one of the first things we like to do here in the leading edge is give the guests the opportunity to defend themselves as a player. Now, did you play baseball at all throughout the years? Sure did. Uh, I played right through till the end of minor baseball, which was basically my uh, high school year, I guess, was uh, when I kind of packed it in. And uh, I was a decent player, I guess you could say, pitcher and a shortstop and a first baseman primarily. I enjoyed playing a lot. I was, like I said, okay, played summer ball, 
had a couple of offers of a part scholarship to some junior college uh, programs down in the States, but ultimately didn't take them because I really didn't feel like moving to the States at that age. And I wasn't really that serious about it. I was already kind of serious about umpiring. And so I decided to uh, get on with schooling at BCIT where I went. That was the end of my playing days. So as a pitcher, what was your out pitch? Uh, you know what? I was a thumber. I could throw curveballs that broke in a couple of different uh, ways. I threw a knuckleball once in a while. My fastball was certainly never uh, going to be an out pitch for me. That was, uh, I would have had, I, I would have to say I'd be a curveball guy. Did you have control of that curveball? How did it break? No, I had a pretty, I had pretty good control of my curveball. I'd started up around the batter's shoulders and I had quite a severe drop at the end. So I'd, I'd catch uh, a lot of younger players bailing out of the box as, as it dropped in uh, across the plate. Control is the key. Now, being from British Columbia and British Columbia known for having a lot of major league talent over the years, have you come across any major league players in their early days? Well, I p p grew up playing baseball in the same association and played ball with Paul Spoljarek, who uh, ended up in the majors for the a Jays. number of years. Yeah. yeah, played for the Jays. So Paul and I are uh, still friends and talk to him usually when I go out to T12 uh, out in Toronto. Uh, he's one of the guest coaches there. So uh, Paul and I kind of reconnect there. And uh, Paul, Paul was a great guy. He was a nice guy when we were young. He umpired a little bit uh, as well with my dad and I. And uh, my dad coached uh, summer ball. And so when my dad was ill, actually, Paul was still playing in the big leagues. And he took the time to write my dad a nice letter thanking him oh. for being a coach and, and helping him along when he was a kid and signed, you know, signed a nice picture. And I was very special. I was very thankful that Paul did that. A real, a real pro. That does sound pretty classy. And you don't get to the majors based on talent alone. You have to have a personality and be a winner on and off the field. Now I'm going to take a little jab at Paul Swaljerick. Now I got a buddy of mine. His name is Elmer, Elmer Jerkovitz. I don't know if you know him. I've heard of him. Well, Elmer got the chance to umpire Paul's son Turner at the 2019 Canada Cup in Regina. Turner played for Team Ontario, and I think he was the starting pitcher in the gold medal game. Paul's got a couple of kids that uh, are, are pretty pitchers. I wouldn't be surprised if they make something out of themselves. Have to agree with the quality of baseball that Baseball Canada is putting out these days to be given the ball in the championship game means that you probably got a little potential, but in that championship, just to throw it out there, Nova Scotia claimed their first title over Ontario 3-2. to two. Turner ended up giving up three runs on five innings, but recording nine strikeouts. Not bad for a championship game. Now let's talk about your adult days playing baseball. Did you ever get the opportunity to play against any other umpires? <laughs> well, uh, as it turns out, towards the end of my uh, baseball days, my dad coached um, the summer ball team and his brother coached in Kamloops. <clears throat> so we would play, we would play against Kamloops quite a bit over, you know, during the summer. I remember there was uh, my dad's brother coached uh, with a guy who had had a son in the program there named Blaise LeVay. Blaise LeVay, that rings a bell. You know what? Was Blaise a guest here on the leading edge in the first season? Uh, yeah, I think he was. And uh, Blaise, is, Blaise is a really good umpire now. He was a really good baseball player back then. He was also a jackass when he was a player. <laughs> and that's being nice. <clears throat> wow. 
Well, based on his episode, he will admit that. He was very high strung on the baseball field. He was also better than everybody else, but but that was beside the point. Him and I had a hell of a rivalry when we were young. <laughs> he was the best player in Kamloops by quite a bit, and I was one of the better guys, and the association was called Rutland Minor Baseball, which is part of Kelowna. So we used to see each other quite a bit in summer ball. We had uh, we had a pretty good rivalry there when we were young, and I would say not a friendly one either. So uh, we were both very competitive uh, players, and uh, we're both competitive umpires too, quite honestly. But Blaze, you know, played for a lot longer than I did at a much higher level, and he was a catcher for a long period of time. And and I can tell you, as a young umpire trying to start out working higher level of baseball where maybe I didn't even belong, but I was there anyway. Blaze and I had a few interesting conversations when I was the umpire and he was the catcher. I don't think I ever threw him out, but he got his licks in on us, we'll put it that way. You might not have thrown him out, but I think there was a story shared in the first season by an umpire named Rob Allen. I think Rob had the opportunity and the privilege to eject Blaze, so check that episode out if you haven't already heard it. Rob grew up in Kamloops, so he would have had plenty of opportunities to to deal with Blaze. Now, if memory serves me correctly, I think Rob says that Blaze used to stick pitches, and Blaze claims that Blaze has never missed a pitch and Rob's missed a lot, but I'll let those two guys bicker it out offline. Yeah, just ask him. Okay, so you talk about moving from baseball into umpiring. What really got you into umpiring? Pretty easy, actually. It was not something that I set out to do. I was 11 years old. Uh, it was 1983. Actually, it was, uh, yeah, it was 1983. My... Uh, brother played uh, was two years younger than me so he was playing mosquito baseball dad and mom of course would pack the family up and head out to the local minor baseball field to go watch my brother play baseball of course I was too young to stay at home so I had no choice (laughs) and dad basically said uh, you know they didn't have any paid umpires so dad would basically call the game behind the plate and one day he asked me if I wanted to try and I didn't really want to and he said well it'd be good for you you'd learn a lot about the strike zone and learn a little bit about the rules probably make you a better baseball player and so I decided to give it a try and you know it didn't take me very long to realize that I liked it and so dad would go out and work on the bases and I'd work home plate and that's kind of how that started and so the next year there was an umpire clinic of course and so dad and I decided to go to the umpire clinic and I I was off and running and that was 1984. Wow that's quite the tenure. What are some of the leagues that you've been part of over the years? Oh, oh over the years, I've pro- I've worked quite a few different ones. Um, yeah, because British Columbia is known for some of the leagues they put together. Yeah, well, you know, in the in the old days, I'll say the Premier Baseball League in in BC used to be quite something. There was eight teams, and there were guys like Justin Morneau and Jeff Francis and Adam Lowen and a handful of other guys that I probably have forgot mentioning. Uh, a bunch of guys en- ended up going on to big league careers. Brett Laurie is another guy who more recently has done that and and Tyler O'Neill. So that league has produced a tremendous amount of talent over the years. The the league isn't what it used to be. There's probably 16 teams now, so the the talent level is not quite as as focused as it used to be. But uh, there's been a lot of really, really good baseball players in the Premier League. So I worked some of that when I was younger. Uh, the the senior men's baseball league was a triple A league in uh, BC, and highly highly competitive over the years and still is. Back in the older days, it, it was there was a lot more teams that played. It was interesting. I was 15 years old. I remember the day like it was yesterday, and uh, somebody couldn't make it 
to umpire that night because they were sick or something to that effect. They were actually calling for my dad and he said, well, no, I can't. I have to work tonight, but my son is available. And I don't think they understood how young I was. So uh, I remember my mom had to drive me to the ballpark to umpire my first senior men's game, 15 years old, remember. It was under the lights. It was uh, a nine-inning game. We worked three-umpire system, which I'd never done in my life. Uh, I worked third base. I was scared shitless. And the two guys that I worked with, uh, one was actually one of my uh, baseball coaches, and I was friends with his son, so that was very comforting. Another one of the old-timers from the association that was a pretty good mentor to me, so I was actually very comfortable with who I was working. I remember the starting pitcher for Kelowna was Daryl Paquette, and the starting pitcher for Kamloops was Bob Bull Bridges. And Bull Bridges pitched for the national team in the 70s, and Daryl Paquette, I think, pitched as high as AAA in the Mets organization when he was a little bit younger. And I could name you still, to this day, the nine players who were on the field for the Kelowna team for that game. I was so excited. I couldn't even believe that I was there. And again, it was under the lights, which was a totally different experience. I actually felt like I'd made the major leagues that day. And, and so my, my mom dropped me off. And then mom comes and picks me up. So at the end of the game, the old guy who was the treasurer, his name was Al Knutson, and he came into the umpire's room. He brought out, he always carried a little brown briefcase with him, and he opens up his little briefcase and takes his checkbook out. And he says, how old are you? And I said, uh, well, I'm 15. And he says, uh, boy, he says, you can come out and do our games anytime that you want. He said, you're better than some of the old guys we get around here. <laughs> And so I thought that was kind of funny. Well, he wrote me a check for $20 to do the bases. Again, I, I just, my jaw almost hit the bottom of the, of my feet. I couldn't believe that he was paying me $20 to umpire a game when up to that point, I think the most I had ever made was uh, maybe $8 to do the plate at minor baseball. I remember the first game actually that I umpired that I got paid for, it was $4 for the plate and $3 for the bases you got a pop at the end of the game at the concession when you turned your gear in. <clears throat> so things have come come a long ways in the meantime. But so that was uh, so that was my first experience uh, umpiring a men's baseball game. And and for me the for me the money was was great. But I had so much fun and I couldn't believe I was there. And again, way over my head. But I was given an opportunity and I took that opportunity and and went with it and. That was uh, kind of the start of, of propelling me into an older and higher level of baseball uh, at an early point in my life. And, and then as I got a little bit older, once I got into, you know, I was done with school and whatnot, and I was in my early 20s, I had an opportunity to work in Kelowna and in the old Pacific International League and in Kamloops in the Western Baseball League. So those were the, those were kind of two semi-pro and uh, leagues where you had a lot of X guy, X pro guys, and and so the the baseball was pretty serious, and it was you know big boy baseball, and so I was in my early twenties working in those leagues, and then uh, uh, then there was an opportunity to umpire in the Canadian Baseball League for the half a season that it was around, and so that was fun while it lasted. In the late two thousands, uh, when the Golden Baseball League expanded to uh, Calgary and Edmonton and Victoria. 
I worked quite a bit in that league. I had a job that was flexible, so I was a shift worker, so I would quite frequently take take 12 days off in a row, go up to Edmonton and Calgary and Victoria and make make road trips and umpire in that league. And, and that league really was great for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I got to work with guys who had been in AAA or in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. And so I got to learn a tremendous amount from those guys. Who were some of those guys? The the league umpire in chief was Ron Barnes. Yeah. Ron worked a, a five, six hundred games in the big leagues as a call up over a you know period of eight or ten years and ultimately didn't get a job. But he had all of that experience and he was never uh, never afraid of sharing his opinions on things, but he was also never afraid of sharing his wisdom. Still to this day, there are things that that he says and things that he has done that I go in put in the back of my head when I'm struggling calling balls and strikes or don't feel that I'm seeing the ball well. There's certain phrases that he had that he would use that I still say to myself when I'm behind the plate. Uh, and it has everything to do with my timing and about bearing down on certain things, about forgetting uh, things that you can't control after they've happened, about moving on, uh, about establishing a strike zone early in the game, about taking it home at the end of the game and not making, you know, a big mistake in the ninth inning, which is what everybody will remember you for when you had, you know, eight and a half innings of excellent ball strike calls. And, you know, you call something that bounces in the dirt in the ninth inning. What do you think they're going to remember you for? Right. So, so he was a tremendous uh, teacher that really worked you know, a lot with me. Ian Lamplew was a guy who worked in the big leagues as a call-up as well from Victoria. And uh, so I worked a lot of games in Victoria with Ian. Again, tremendous teacher. Uh, He taught at Jim Evans Umpire School for a long time. So he had a teaching ability as well as an umpire ability. So I I got to work a lot with Ian, uh, which was great because he was kind of one of the guys I looked up to in British Columbia as somebody that made it. Uh, or at least gone to that point. So that was tremendous. You know, there was a few other guys that worked in the big leagues or that were call-ups and guys like Billy Hayes and Peter Durfee. Keith Jones was another one I used to work with a lot. All these guys had done AAA and call-up to big league. And, you know, they were working up in Canada in the Golden League. So for those three years that I worked there, I, I learned more about game management and more about situation handling than anything I ever could have learned from, you know, umpiring a local minor baseball game. Now, you can confirm this or not, Steve, but what I've heard about Ron Burns is that he is probably the number one umpire's umpire that you're ever going to meet. Oh, gosh, Ronnie was uh, such a... He was... He really, he really, it's not that he hated the players, but he knew how to handle players. And there was a respect level. I mean, Ian and Ron actually were on a AAA crew together when they were coming up. And so, so Ian would tell me stories about Ron. And then I'd see things that Ron would do on the field and the way he would handle things and the way he would look after his crew. I mean, I remembered my very first game in the Golden League. It was, uh, it was in Calgary at uh, Foothill Stadium in Edmonton was down and so Edmonton and Calgary had played four games in Edmonton to start the season and Ron had gone up to Edmonton and worked the first four games and then he came to Calgary and worked the next four games and so the three umpires in Calgary were me Mitch Ball and Ronnie I believe the first game of the the first game of the series I had the plate Mitch had first and Ron had third the game was uh, very close 
I want to say it was the la- it was the last inning in Edmonton. I think Edmonton was behind by a couple of runs. And so Calgary got the first two players out. He got the first two hitters out. And then I think I had a close close call for ball four. The guy goes to first base. The next guy gets uh, plunked in the ribs. So now there's two guys on. Oh, I'm sorry. Edmonton was, I got to get this straight. Edmonton was in front. And so Calgary gets the first first two guys are out. So now we got first and second. And we get to a, a two and two count. And again, Mitch Ball is at first base. It's a right-handed hitter. And the Edmonton reliever throws this wicked curveball that the Calgary guy does a check swing on. And I don't call it a swing. And I point to Mitch at first base, and he doesn't call it a swing. And so there's lots of griping and complaining from the Edmonton dugout. Well, of course, you know what happens next. The next one goes out of the ballpark. Calgary wins the game. Edmonton is furious. And, of course, we have to walk past their dugout on the way back to the dressing room, naturally. Wouldn't have it any other way. And so I remember Ron Barnes telling uh, coaching staff there, basically, we had the call right. And, and you know, a few, a few four-letter words came out at them because he didn't take a lot of guff from anybody. And so we get to the dressing room. So here I am, and Mitch, here's Mitch. We think we've done the right thing. Ron Barnes goes up one side of us and down the other about how we blew the call, (laughs) how we had an opportunity to get out of the game, and uh, we decided, you you know, we have to finish it off in that situation. But the point was that when we were on the field, he stuck up for us and he told those guys that they were wrong and that we were right. And we go to the, we go to the dressing room thinking, Oh, this guy, you know, really stuck up for us. Well, he shit on us. Like you have no idea. (laughs) We had had a good game. Otherwise we had no problems of any kind, but anyway, so his concluding words at the end of that, at the end of that interview or at the end of that conversation, he says, well, that's it. You're just going to have to throw somebody out next game. Okay. I'd like to see where this is going. And Mitch and I kind of look at each other with this puzzled look on our face. And he says, well, you just have to. And I, so, of course, I said, uh, for what? I don't care for what. He says, you're going to have to find something to throw one of those Edmonton guys out. He said, the, he said, the whole year is a write-off otherwise. He said, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to have any respect for you. And they're not, they're, I said, the whole, he said, the whole season is done unless you throw somebody out this game. Did you take him up in his advice? And so I was, I was, I, I is this really how, <laughs> is yeah. this really how you umpire in professional baseball? Well, going home to sleep on that, that must be a difficult thing too. Well, it was a double header. Let's get to it then. And so I was stunned and I, and I asked Mitch, I said, are we really going to do this? And he's like, he's the boss. You know, I was smart enough to realize, well, if, if I, if I have an opportunity, I'd better do it. If there's no opportunity, there's no opportunity. But if there is an opportunity, uh, I'd better do it or I'm probably not going to work in this league anymore. So, of course, now I'm at third base. Mitch is doing the plate. Ron Barnes is at first base. Shot down the right field line. So he watches for catch, no catch. And now I'm coming in from third base to make the call at second. The guy catches it on one bounce. The Edmonton guy goes for two. The ball comes in from the outfield. It's a close play. It's bang, bang. I bang the guy out. This is early in the game, like second inning. Edmonton manager was Brent Bowers at the time, and he comes running out, and I was like, oh, here we go. He made it easy on me. He gets about three words into his discussion with me and throws his hat on the ground. Bingo. Well, I prefer Kino, but that's beyond the point. So I didn't actually have to do anything. Right. 
was handed to you. Other than what I normally would do to anybody who does me that. And so out he goes, and then he gets on his knees and he makes, you know, a, a big song and dance about it. And it turned out that it was okay because he got his two cents worth in and, and it was obviously a carryover from the game before. And Ron Barnes never moved from first base the entire time because he wanted to see how I was going to handle myself. And about an inning later, we decided to meet behind second base. And he says, I guarantee you, you won't have any problems with that guy the rest of the year. He said, that was, you know, and then he said, that was really well done the way you handled yourself, blah, 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 blah. But he said, sometimes you have to eject people to gain respect from them, at least in professional baseball. And he said, these guys look at you like you're just a Canadian who doesn't know nothing. He said, but I want them to look at you like you're a professional umpire who knows something wow. and that you deserve to be here. It was pretty ironic how it worked out, but I never had any problems with Brent Bauer after that. He had lots of problems with lots of guys in the league, but I wasn't one of them. Anyway, so that was kind of an interesting story about getting into pro ball and umpiring at a in a professional atmosphere with with guys who'd been to the big leagues and and guys who you know who had you know been there and done that and were passing on information to you that was going to help you. It, it, pro pro baseball is a totally different ball game. You know, the there's the players and managers generally give you more respect, certainly on the close calls, because they just assume that you're right as opposed to minor baseball or men's baseball or beer league or anything of that nature where they assume that you're bad right from the get-go sometimes and you have to prove to them that you're good. Right. So it, it's an it's kind of opposite in professional baseball, even in independent baseball. It, and, and you umpire differently accordingly. Right. You've already proved yourself enough to get there. You just have to prove that you're good enough to stay there. Where in amateur baseball, you just have to prove that you can do anything. Essentially. With somebody that knows nothing. There's a lot of those. Now, working the Golden League, who are some of the other Canadian umpires that you might have worked with? Well, I worked a lot with Mitch Ball. M Mitch and I were kind of the Calgary guys. There was there was a few other guys that don't umpire anymore. Uh, Bryce Payton, uh, Pierre Samard, a couple of guys who, who aren't in the program any longer they they worked you know a number of games uh, as well in edmonton i worked fair amount it was actually it was nothing for me you know i lived in cranbrook at the time so it was nothing for me to get off work after a night shift at seven or eight o'clock in the morning and uh, drive the seven hours to edmonton and sleep for a couple hours in the umpire room and then go out and work home plate that, that's how much i wanted to work Right. No, and then I'm sure I'm not the only guy who ever did that. It, basically, anybody who's ever tried to get somewhere probably has stories like that. But that was kind of the way I did it at that time, and that's what I did, you know, for the opportunities and worked uh, worked with you know lots of good umpires. And obviously, you know, Corey Davis uh, in Edmonton was was a guy that that worked a little bit in that league and was you know a real quality Canadian umpire that you know that we had an opportunity to work with a lot. And that's. 10, 12 years ago already, and a lot of the guys who are working in that league, like, you know, Ted Durpak and guys like that, they've all retired. Yeah, so generation, right? They were kind of generation. The, and that's the amazing thing about umpiring. You have talked about it before, generational umpiring. You come up with a certain group, and you can be at the bottom of the generation, or you can be at the top, but we transition through like a family. Yeah, and you know, I I mean there's every everybody has has a story in Canada about guys that they started in the national program with and who they've worked with 
uh, six or eight times in their uh, national career. For me, the guy is Scott Mills. So <laughs> out of all the national tournaments that I've been to, I've been to, I think Scotty and I counted 10 or 11 times that we've been to nationals together now. Yeah, offline, he's told me the same thing. I think he says it's in the double digits. So Yeah, so that's, you know, everybody's going to have a guy like that or a couple of guys like that that, you know, they went to the same tournaments with. And, and you know, that kind of makes our national program fun too because, you know, when I first started in the national program in the early 2000s, it was, I didn't know anybody right. uh, outside of the province. And, and now, of course, I know most people. When I first started, it was the older guys who came to the tournaments were there for social time. A lot of them and to hang out with their old friends and, and, you know, baseball just kind of got in the way. And, and, you know, that, that was kind of how it was, you know, back in those days, it's certainly a little bit more serious now for the guys who've been to a lot of national tournaments. It's nice to reconnect with old friends that you don't see otherwise. For sure. And that's the nice thing about the national program is we typically get into it. We don't know many people outside of our local or provincial scene. And then we get into the program and we go to our first championship. We meet people and this is, I think, a, a testament to the program itself is that at one time, it's my interpretation, you were just sent somewhere based on what your provincial supervisor made the recommendation. But now you really enter at a certain level and you have to work your way through it. Now, of course, different people have different abilities depending on where they've been. But you it's a stepping stone. You have to go through each division so you'll see the same guys probably at the same level as you over and over yeah well this is so here's a, a perfect example of that this is how stupid this is my first national was a junior and when we talk about generational umpiring a lot of people from your generation will say that maybe their first championship was a cup was a junior could have been a senior it really depended on where the championship was and how many slots that were assigned that's right. And so, and so my first year I went to a junior. Nowadays, that, that would be unheard of. Part of the reason it's unheard of is because you should start at a minor tournament at a peewee or a bantam or maybe even a midget. But you shouldn't do anything higher than that because, because you don't know the national program. You don't know the expectation level. It can be very overwhelming for a first-time umpire just because of all the logistics and all the different things that go on. Uh, you don't know your partners. You don't know anybody who's there. You probably don't even know the supervisors. And there's so many different things that go on in your first national or even your second national that you have to get your bearings. So for me, and it, I go to Windsor, Ontario, and my crew was, uh, Rocky Nickel was my supervisor, and I worked with Chris Wilhelm. I had never umpired at a national tournament before, and I, my first game was at first base. I had umpired lots of junior baseball, obviously, but so the level of baseball wasn't over my head, but I had my own style. I didn't have any, you know, my baseball mechanics, as far as baseball Canada was concerned, were terrible. Right. I, was taking call, I was taking calls from a knee at first base. Cause that's how I did it at home Look, and nobody had told me otherwise. Looks good, but not functional. Yeah. It's probably looked great on TV, except I wasn't on TV. So again, that didn't go very good with my supervisor. Yeah, I could not see Rocky it. enjoying that. Well, Rocky was, was my crew chief and, and oh. he kind of, you know, you kind of asked me, he's, he was like, hasn't anybody ever told you we don't do that? And I was like, no. And so anyway, so my, my supervisor was uh, Larry Nichols from Manitoba, oh, yeah. you know, Right. So Larry was a, an old school guy and he had his way of doing things and and, uh, you know, a great guy, but he, he had no tolerance at all for things of that nature and nor should he have. And so, of course, that started me out on, on the wrong foot right off the bat. Right. You know, at, at that time, that was also that was also the year we had the blackout back east. Oh, yes. 
So that was not a great tournament for a whole lot of different reasons. So um, that was an eye opener for me about about that. And, and I was actually not real happy with my provincial supervisor when I got home that he had sent me to that level because there was really no ability for me to succeed there. So I know in our province, I will not send any umpire who's first national to anything higher than a bantam because i want them to have an opportunity to be successful so i don't care if they're a senior men's umpire at home the most you're going to see at your first national is a bantam because i want you to succeed and not set you up for failure that's a fair point but i think the most fair point that you've made is that it's a different experience it's not like just going down to the ballpark on a tuesday you know, you might be flying into a foreign airport. You might have never gotten a plane before. There's so much that a first championship involves that going somewhere to succeed is not a bad thing. And I really like that mentality. It's something I might not have agreed with when I was 18, 19 years old. But now that I look at it, I say it's okay to be the best at that level. And that prepares you to get to the next level. I've had a couple of guys who were probably not happy when I made the announcements to say you're going to the Bantams this year. They probably weren't real excited about that, but then they got the gold medal plate and felt really good about themselves and got good feedback and got a recommendation to go to Canada Cup or Junior. And so they came back and they were had a different tune than when they left. <laughs> and that's okay. I, 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 I don't mind being right. And I don't mind if, <laughs> if they tell me that I'm right. But the reality is that it's better for it's better for umpires to be in a situation that they have an opportunity to succeed it's up to them to succeed, but I, I'm happy to provide opportunities to my guys who, in an area that I think that they can succeed at, you know, the rest is up to them. And I'll also put it out there, anybody that thinks they're going to a Wee or a 13U or a Bantam or a 15U championship and it's going to be a walk in the park, somebody who does senior all day and has easy plays that are made or the hard hit ball is, is going to fall and you realize that you're on a smaller diamond with less skilled players but appropriately skilled players for their age group it's a completely different game i remember watching a guy from manitoba named harry schellenberg uh, harry was about six foot six he was on the peewee diamond he looked hilarious oh, yes. and and he was completely lost as, as far as where he was supposed to be and he was in the way all the time uh, harry was such a good guy uh, from manitoba yeah he he struggled with being on a peewee field especially at his size a step and a half and you've already rotated from first to home. Exactly. You talked about your first national championships. How many have you been to over the years? Well, I, I didn't know until you told me to count. And so the answer is 17. Needs more than two hands. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So I haven't, uh, I think I've umpired at seven. I have been a supervisor at six or seven and I've been to T12 three times so if you include T12, it's 17, and if you don't, it's 14. Hey, when it comes to T12, I think we can include it in the national championship category, but I also want to say it's another feather in a cap, and it belongs in a special category on top of it. It's quite the resume you have as well. Yeah, I don't know if it's quite a resume or not. I've certainly had opportunities uh, as an umpire. I've done lots of different things that, that and different nationals and been all across the country and I've uh, been very grateful for those opportunities. And certainly as a supervisor, I've enjoyed giving back in that field as well. And so I, I've, I've had a good, uh, a good career in baseball Canada and, and, you know, I intend to be around, you know, doing those things for a while yet. 
Now, Steve, I like what you said about giving back, and I think that's what I like most about the Baseball Canada program. We're almost like a family in that we do give back. There is a priority about giving back, and we look after each other because if we don't look after each other, there's no one else that's really going to step up and do it. I, I learned about family the first year when I went to Windsor. That was a single-site tournament, so worked, like I said, in the junior tournament, but there was also the Canada Cup, and the peewee and the women's tournament they're all the same week okay and so i got to meet an awful lot of different people people from all across the country i got to meet players uh, as well and uh, coaches and uh, different people from different provinces who were there as the chef so from that standpoint it was a great experience you know there was like i said some some things off the field that happened that that were kind of hard like the blackout things of that nature but no it air was, conditioning uh, and the no air conditioning, but, but I will say that the camaraderie was instantaneous. So it didn't matter if you were umpiring in the uh, junior tournament or the women's tournament or the peewees or the Canada cup, all the umpires all socialized with each other at night. Beautiful. And you know, the hospitality that, that I was shown, particularly from the guys in Manitoba really uh, stood out to me. So Manitoba uh, that year <laughs> rented the Hutterite van from uh, from Shuchuk's uh, school, uh, and they drove with this little uh, U-Haul trailer where everybody's equipment and uh, everything went. So they had seven guys, in and plus Larry Nichols, in the van, and they were driving <laughs> to Windsor, and that's how they could afford to send seven guys to Nationals. So they went for the first week, and they all piled into the van, and so they all hung out together because there was no, I mean, they knew each other obviously very well, but there was no place to go. Nobody had a car and there was not much in the way of transportation there because of the situation we were in. And I didn't really know anybody. So I hung out with the guys from Manitoba a lot, really got to learn a lot about Haji and Shuchuk that week because it was, uh, that. that's just, that's just what we did. We all hung out you know, together. And, and so I learned a lot about hospitality of your partners and, and camaraderie amongst the umpire group that first tournament. You think you learned a lot about Haji and Ronnie that weekend, just so you're aware from Winnipeg to Windsor, it's 17 hours and 23 minutes driving straight, 1,846 kilometers one way. I'm sure the other guys in the van, in the van yeah, learned wanna, a lot about those guys. Yeah. I want to say they drove through the States yeah. So I want to say they went down wherever they go down and came up like Windsor's yep. right on the border yep. uh, of Detroit. So they, they, they did the scenic tour through the States and th through all the nice cities in the States like Detroit and yep. Chicago <laughs> and, and Green Bay and things of that nature. And so they, they went that way. And I, I, I don't know. I, I hope, I hope that they, they all survived their trip without, killing each other i know there was one umpire that didn't have a very good tournament that week and larry wasn't talking to him at the end of it so i know the trip back was not as much fun as it was getting there well as i look at the google map if they left winnipeg they had to go down through north dakota over across into minnesota down through wisconsin into illinois across into indiana like you said into michigan and then into, into ontario so i'm sure they had a few states to battle it out and Probably some cheap adult beverages once you cross that border, too. Well, just knowing Haji and uh, Ronnie, I'm pretty sure there was a few uh, few chili millies concerned, <laughs> consumed over the course of that uh, trip. Well, rumor has it that's the week that Ronnie went dry, but we won't talk about it. 
He's been dry for a lot of things for a long period of time. <laughs> yeah, he does have a dry sense of humor. Okay, Steve, we have to ask, you talk about hospitality in 2003, and that's where you really learned about everything and everybody getting together. Can you share with us some funny stories that might have happened off the field in Windsor? Oh, by far the funniest thing that I've ever seen. All the tournaments conclude on the last day. All the umpires, uh, for the most part, are back at the hotel. Some of them are out. Uh, we're sitting in, in uh, Caledonia College, and we're sitting in the commons room. And so all of us are sitting around. There's probably 15 or 20 of us, a lot, a lot of guys that people would know. guy from Newfoundland, who you've had on your show, named Dave Buckingham, just a gem of a human being. And the Quebec uh, coach, he has the Canada Cup with him. And so he comes into the middle of the umpire's commons, and we're all sitting around, and Bucky was sitting right next to the door on the couch. So uh, Joel comes into the room, and he says in his very thick French accent, and he says, you see, we won the Canada Cup, even though the umpires squeeze us all weekend. And Bucky, without batting an eye, reaches up from behind him, grabs him by the balls, and says... How do you like that squeezing you by? <laughs> I think Trevor Drury shared that story once, and uh, I'm glad that we can confirm it because Bucky was denying it heavily. But Oh, it happened. It happened. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Well, it's definitely a story that'll live in infamy. That's for sure. 2006, you get the opportunity to umpire at the Canada Cup. That's in Medicine Hat. I see on the umpire roster that year is former MLB player and eventually 1992 Olympian Ozzy Chevarria. What was it like to umpire the championship at that level with a man who had been around the world? Well, Ozzy was is from BC, right? And so I had already umpired with him before going okay. to Medicine Hat. Ozzy is such a clown. For the listeners, a lot of people really don't even know who he is, but he was from Panama, is where he was raised. Right. And then he came to the States. He lied about his age. Yes. So if you ever if you ever look at his baseball card, his baseball card, the age is actually listed two years younger than what he actually was. And that was to make him more palatable to teams who may have wanted to sign him because he came over late. Okay. And so anyway, so that's how he started. And he played for the uh, Kansas City Athletics. And uh, then he was traded to the Yankees and never actually played for the Yankees. But so his three years in the big leagues were with the Kansas City Athletics. And then uh, wherever he ended up getting traded to after that, the farm team was uh, the Vancouver Mounties of the AAA Pacific Coast League. And so he ended up playing in Vancouver at the AAA level and uh, met his wife, Donna, and decided that he was going to retire. And so that's where he ended up living. He coached for a number of years with National Baseball Institute. And then in 1978, Ozzy was coaching an NBI game in Idaho, and the umpires didn't show up. And that's a whole nother story. Ozzy ended up umpiring the game. Okay. Got positive reviews, I guess, about his abilities. And so our provincial supervisor at the time, that uh, was Howard Chapman, uh, asked Ozzy if he would come out and umpire with him the next year. And he did. It was pretty obvious at that time, you know, Ozzy obviously knew everything there was to know about ball strike, out safe. His ability on the field was fantastic. 
His mechanics were no hell, never really were. The fact was that his ability on the field, he could out-umpire most guys, uh, you know, with his eyes closed. You know, at an international level, he was very desirable, of course, because number one, he was competent, but number two, he was fluent in Spanish. Right. And so he was able to be put into all sorts of different situations and all sorts of different games. He had the pedigree and the resume behind him. All of Canada and all of the baseball community knew who Ozzy Chavarria was. He he ended up going to the Olympics, uh, representing Canada in 1992, and uh, then he umpired for a long time, and he actually only retired a few years ago here in BC. He was about 70 when he finally quit. As it turned out, uh, Ozzy was part of Peru, so I was I really enjoyed having uh, him at a national tournament, different atmosphere than umpiring with him at a men's tournament in BC. And uh, Howard Chapman was the supervisor at that Canada Cup. And so Howard and Ozzy were, uh, I don't know, Jekyll and Hyde in one way, uh, (laughs) grumpy old men in another way. Ron and Hodgie in another way? Uh, They were Ron and Hodgie in another way. And so they uh, they would play jokes on each other and say funny things to each other. And Ozzy would always try to ramp Howard up and then he'd come <laughs> in and look at you and kind of laugh and smile because he knew that he was upsetting Howard. And so and it was it was always very funny. You know, Howard in his own right, he, he butchered the English language like nobody ever did before. You know, so Howard would say things that that Ozzy would just you know, rake him over the calls for saying something that didn't make any sense. Or I remember we were sitting in the dressing room in Medicine Hat. Somebody decided to ask Howard about Ozzy just to see what he would say about him. And, you know, so Howard talks about Ozzy and how they've been to so many tournaments together. And and somebody said, well, do you room with Ozzy? And Howard said, yes, I've slept with Ozzy many times. (laughs) And so, you know, of course, Ozzy lost his marbles on him because even Ozzy knew that that didn't make sense. <laughs> so, yeah, those two guys were like grumpy old men. They were so funny. Two legends in uh, baseball Canada. That's what's so great about this program is that we all have these different personalities, but the beautiful thing is that baseball brings us together. Yeah. Now, baseball has also afforded you the ability to go from one coast to the other. 2009, you're in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Uh, well, we had Hurricane Bill that year. I remember that. Uh, Ronnie and I were at that tournament uh, together that year, so that was interesting. Haji was my supervisor with uh, Corey Davis and Andrew Higgins. So from that standpoint, I would say the supervisory crew was probably the best I've ever uh, worked for. As a group of three guys working together, we were all on the same page and really had had tremendous, tremendous baseball careers and were able to pass along a lot of really uh, useful information to us, tidbits and tips. And so that was a, that was a lot of fun. The hurricane, not so much. That I think the hurricane set in on Sunday morning. We managed, uh, everything got canceled, and I think we played the gold medal game on Monday night. In a very on a very wet field, we had a fog out game one night. Remember, Manitoba was playing Quebec, and and in Dartmouth, there's two fields. So they have a in in the city there's a field, and then kind of on the outskirts, in Hammond Bay, there's a field up on the hill, and and fog rolls in there at about I don't know nine ten o'clock at night, and so we got a little bit of a late start that day, and so of course we were expecting fog. And so by the third inning, it was like pea soup. 
But that was the last day of round robin, and we knew that the playoffs had to start the next day, and we knew that the hurricane was coming. We were trying to get that game in. We managed to get until I think it was the sixth inning. It was, of course, it was a like a tie game, so it's not like it was a blowout. So, of course, the fog comes into it. Now, I remember Haji and I talking between innings. Do you think we can go another half inning? Do you think we can go another half inning? And so we decided to keep going. And, of course, there's this fly ball to center field. Should be an easy third out of the inning, naturally, that the Manitoba guy doesn't even see. Bounces over his head. The Quebec guys are running around the bases. And, of course, they take the lead. Now we have a big argument. It turned into a zoo. So, of course, we we have to put the game under suspension. We come back the next morning. Quebec proceeds to fill up the scoreboard. And so now Manitoba was really upset. But that was uh, Dartmouth. Great place to have a tournament. Great city to visit. Gosh, I love the people in the Maritimes. If there was a place that I'd have to live anywhere in Canada that was not British Columbia, I can tell Ron Shuchuk it would not be Minnesota, Minnedosa, Manitoba. <laughs> But it would be Halifax, Nova Scotia. Typically reserve this for a little bit later, but... <laughs> uh, well, you can go down to Dartmouth and live beside the trailer park, boys. You oh, know, I love it out there. Bubbles, Ricky, and Julian. But I'll be honest, a little bit biased in New Brunswick, but anywhere by the water is close to my heart. Just love the setting. But if Ron offered you the opportunity at a Mendoza, you know, lottery golf calendar sweepstakes, would you take him up on the opportunity? I've bought several over my life, actually. And I've never, I've never won a thing. It's because you don't have the right postal code. That's, that's I, I think it's rigged. Oh, well, I suspect it is. I think it's just a way for him to get money out of me at the golf course. Now we know there could be some competition on the scorecard and well, he found a way to get around it. Sure did. Okay. Let's talk about some more national championships. 2012, you get the opportunity to work another men's championship in your home province. What was that like? Yeah, that was 2012. That was a tournament that, again, Andrew Higgins was uh, a supervisor there at that tournament. And his philosophy was that uh, it's the highest level of tournament that we have. Let's try to do as many four umpire system games as we can. And so we worked with a different crew every game. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about four umpire system. I learned a lot about uh, adapting to a play and getting into position for something that might happen in the future. I learned a lot about umpiring that weekend and I had a good time. I'm not a big fan of Prince George as a city, but uh, the fact that I got to umpire a national tournament in my own province, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, we had one game that we had uh, four umpires from BC. We all worked together. Uh, so that was kind of a neat experience. Yeah. And somebody thought that I was uh, deserving of the gold medal plate. So that was a nice way to wrap up the tournament. Now, what was unique about you umpiring the gold medal championship game? Uh, you know, unique about me, I would say, is that, you know, again, it was my home province. If you get an opportunity to umpire uh, home plate in your home province, that's a pretty special feeling. At least it was for me. And I know you know the feeling too. Yes. It's not something. It's not something that you that you get an opportunity to do maybe ever in your national career. So if you get an opportunity to uh, umpire a gold medal plate, and it happens to be in your home province, that's a pretty special feeling. It is, and that's one of the things that we might have in common. But I got to ask you, how did you look that night? Oh yes, yes. We, I brought out the black plate coat for that game. Nothing but the best when you umpire a championship game in your home province. Is that what you're saying? You got you got to look the part. Got to look the part. Got to fool a few people into thinking you know what you're doing. 
Yeah. You talk about walking on the field at a professional baseball level, like, yeah, you deserve to be there. But if you walk on the field wearing that at a national championship level, people look at you and they go, they know what they're doing. Now, talk about home provinces. I'm in Saskatchewan right now. 2015, you get the opportunity to come and supervise at the Canada Cup. Who was your roommate at that championship? <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed Saskatoon a lot. It was the first time I'd been there. That was a unique event. Again, a lot of rain. Yeah, I supervised that uh, tournament with uh, Andrew Downs from Nova Scotia and a real character from Ontario named Chubba Bay. Chubba. And for those of you who have never met Chubba Bay, I will tell you that you should never believe anything that he says. <laughs> Why is that? Anything that he, anything that comes out of his mouth could be fact or fiction. He yeah. he can tell you with a straight face too. So yeah. that that's the thing. I had never met Chuba, and I had been forewarned about his sense of humor before. First of all, Chuba was a tremendous umpire when he was younger. He went to pro school, and he knows the rule book uh, inside and out. Yes, and is a very good umpire. And had been in the program for quite a long time. Yes, and so <clears throat> so then Chuba used to like to have a good time. And so he had a bit of a reputation, we'll say, of a guy who used to have a good time in excess. So there were, there's all sorts of stories about different things that he's done. So I was already prepared, but but he does like food, and that kind of is like me. So so we ate at a lot of good restaurants and steakhouses and pizza joints and treated ourselves to a lot of good food that week. But I had been forewarned ahead of time that that he was he was he was a real character. So. And I, and again, I'd never met him, so I had no idea what he looks like. And so I figured that I was going to set him up for something in my room before, before he got there. So I expected I was the first one there. I, when I get to the desk to check in, I said to the gal at the front, I said, is my roommate checked in yet? And she said, no, you're the first to arrive. Perfect. Excellent. So she gives me the key or up in room, whatever, 702 or whatever the number is. And so I go up and I get to room 702 and put the card in, open up the door. And on the floor is this big case of water and this old jean jacket. <laughs> and I thought, I look at the door number and I don't hear nothing inside. And I, I look at the door number. I'm like, oh, that can't be right. She said it was the right number. And so I kind of tentatively walk in and I kind of, you know, poke my head around the, the corner and there's this man who is naked except for his tidy whities and he's not under the covers and he's not in good shape either. And he's reading this newspaper and he just kind of pokes his head down from the newspaper and he says, well, hello there. And I don't know what to say at this point. I said, uh, I hope you're Chubba. And he says, no, but I've been expecting you. Come on in. So I turn around to leave and he pisses his pants laughing. No, come in, come in, come in. I've been looking forward to meeting you. And I'm like, oh, God. I said, uh, they told me down at the desk that I was the first one there. He said, well, how do you think that happened? So he had it set up ahead of time before I even had a chance to get in there. But what a what a character. I mean, there was a I can tell you a hundred different stories about Chuba and some of the things that he's done. But that uh, that that ranked right up there. I can tell you that. 
That's a funny story because I had the opportunity to meet Chubbo just a couple weeks later at my first national in Rapantigny, Quebec. It was the 13U. Chubbo was brought in as a last-minute fill-in supervisor as they had okay. a guy go down. We make it through the tournament. Like, I'm an umpire. He's a supervisor. You know how the relationship goes. You don't really mingle with them. That's not my style, at least. We finish Sunday, and then Monday comes. It's the rain day, but I'm from the West Coast, so I have my flight leaves Tuesday, and it's me and Mark Wright. Chubba, like you say, he enjoys food. Chubba says, you know what, boys? Let's hit downtown Montreal. I know where there's a real good steakhouse. Well, my whole week's per diem, I think, was spent on one meal. We went to a restaurant. I don't even think they put the prices on their menus. Me and Mark looked at each other. We didn't even know how to tip a place like that. We're like, our whole per diem is probably the tip itself. I'll tell you that Chubba is so generous. When I go to Toronto to T12 or or some other event, if I happen to be in Toronto for whatever reason, Baseball Canada meetings or anything like that, I always call Chubba. Not because I know he's going to buy me dinner, but because he's a good time. <laughs> yes. And so he, because he's a food connoisseur, he says, well, you know, what do you feel like eating tonight? And sometimes we go have Greek and sometimes we go have steak. But if we're going to go have steak, we go to this great restaurant called Harbor Harbor View 60 or Harbor 60. It's right across from the Air Canada Centre. And uh, I've never paid for a meal there. So anytime that I've gone with Chubba and the steaks are fantastic. I, because I don't see the bill, I don't know what my portion is, but it's over $100 for sure every time. And I've, I've never paid once. Chubba is the kind of guy that he would prefer to go to a nice place, yes. even if he knows you can't afford it, because he, he'll pick up the tab just because he wants to eat there. And so the first time that we go there, I have no idea what to expect. And this is a really, really nice place. So he wanders in there with his jean jacket and his jeans. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, whatever, I'm dressed, you know, with khaki pants and a golf shirt kind of thing. And, and, and I'm, you know, I can tell the moment that I walk in that he's underdressed. Oh, yeah. The doorman says, oh, hello, sir. Nice to see you again. Hello, Mr. Vay, says the uh, guy upstairs uh, at the maitre d' station. And I'm like, hello, Mr. Vay. What the hell kind of place are we in here? Like, how do they know him? You know, he socializes and says hello to everybody, and we go and sit down like he's some kind of rock star. And maybe he is, for all I know. He is, yes. He never actually says what he does for work, so, I mean, maybe maybe he is. Uh, He takes care of business, I know that. So anyway, so we go and sit down and, and he says, well, what do, what, you know, what do you feel like eating? And I'm looking at the menu thinking that, that I, it's, I, I don't have $60 for a steak. And so anyway, he, he said, no, just order what you want. He says, I recommend the bone in ribeye. And I'm like, well, how big is it? Well, come over here and I'll show you. So we walk right into the kitchen. And he points to the meat locker and he says, well, this is this and this is this. He says hello to the chefs and 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 then at the end of the day, he pays the bill and we leave. And I'm like, uh, let me guess, that's not your first time there. He said, oh, no, I go there about once a week. And I'm like, once a week? <laughs> he said, yeah, I used to go more frequently. He said, we used to go there before we went to concerts in my drinking days. And, I, and he said, I used to spend quite a bit of money there. He said, no, he said, I've cut it back to once a week now. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So that's my experience with steaks and good restaurants and dining with Chubba Bay. Well, from my knowledge of Chubba, you mentioned that you think he's a rock star. I honestly think that he has been involved in the music scene in Toronto for a lot of years. He did tell me before that he was involved in some drumming at one time and involved in the local music scene. 
Now that stardom, that follows a man. He uh, he actually uh, has a YouTube video posted somewhere of him drumming at home. It's actually, uh, he actually looks like he knows what he's doing. It's quite well, and I know where that video is, so take a look in the show description. I will put it there for you to enjoy. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on the next episode where we finish up this interview with Steve Wu-Tang. Topics covered will be his experiences at Tournament 12, working in an international competition using someone else's umpire equipment, and everybody's favorite 10 questions. So before you go, we would like to leave you with this. Baseball is a game that's made up of inches. And as umpires, our job is to make sure that we maximize the six inches between our ears for every game. Take care, everybody, and stay safe.